You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to this special bonus episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks again for all those great five-star reviews and ratings on iTunes. So as promised, we're devoting this show to taking a look at what America was like on the eve of the Civil War. The writer L.P. Hartley started one of his novels with the line, The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. And Trace and I thought that quote, or that idea, would be a good starting point for this episode. Because as we look at what America was like before the outbreak of the Civil War, it's good to keep in mind that the past is very much like a foreign country. They did things differently there. Now, we can certainly broaden our understanding of the war by studying the circumstances in which that tragic conflict took place, but as we take this look backward, we'll do well to remember what may seem obvious— that America was a very different place back then. As much as someone might like to imagine that we could go back in time to the America of 1860 and that we'd fit right in, it would actually probably be more like trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. Even though 150 plus years separate us from that time, obviously we'd share some similarities with Americans back then. I mean, we're all humans after all. But the truth is, the differences would undoubtedly far outweigh the similarities, and we'd probably have quite a bad case of culture shock. There would be a massive difference in attitudes and customs and beliefs, which factor into how we interpret experiences and how we look at the world we live in. And even the basic underlying assumptions that determine how we tackle daily life have undergone enormous changes in the last 150 or so years. Just think about the technology we use today in our everyday lives, things that most of us would be hard-pressed to live without, but things that would be totally alien to people back then, things we simply take for granted like electricity, refrigerators, ovens and microwaves, computers, automobiles, phones, and coffee houses. Man, you can guess who the coffee drinker in our household is. They drank coffee during the Civil War. Well, they did, a lot. Uh, But anyway, technological changes in the last 150 years would probably account for the biggest or the most visible difference between our daily lives and the daily life of folks back then. Really, technology has transformed how we interact with each other and with the world. And we should certainly be grateful for the advances in medicine and healthcare. Um, But you guys get the idea. Uh, This introduction is really just to point out that as we make our way through the balance of this episode, we just wanted you to keep in mind that in a very real sense, 
the past really is a foreign country. They did things differently there. We're going to start off with population, so brace yourselves. We're going to throw some numbers at y'all. The total number of Americans recorded in 1790, the year of the first U.S. Census, was just a tick over 3.9 million, more than 80% of whom were white and of British ancestry. By the 1860 census, the U.S. population had increased to 31.4 million, now from a wide range of national and ethnic backgrounds, and that total included 4.4 million blacks. That amazing increase in population from 1790 to 1860 was mainly caused by natural growth. Americans during that period were apparently reproducing like bunnies, since even exclusive of immigration, the total still doubled every 25 years. But immigration did contribute to the increase. Immigration from Europe really got into full swing in the 1820s. During that decade, there were 143,000 newcomers. Between 1831 and 1840, nearly 600,000 people immigrated to the United States. And then between 1845 and 1860, three million new immigrants arrived, and most were from Germany and Ireland. You see, the Irish potato famine, which began in 1845, brought the Irish to cities on the northeastern seaboard. Cities such as New York, Boston, and Philadelphia. And then the failed revolutions of 1848 brought German speaking Europeans to Midwestern cities like St. Louis, Chicago, Milwaukee, and Cincinnati. Some immigrants settled in the South, but the vast majority chose to live in the North, and many would serve in the Union Army. In fact, the large numbers of Germans and Irish who fought for the North, 200,000 Germans and 150,000 Irish, allowed the formation of full regiments of German and Irish volunteers. Some of the Germans actually spoke no or very little English. Of the 31 million people counted by the 1860 census, roughly 22 million lived in the North. And about a quarter of Northerners, some 5.5 million people, Lived in cities. In fact, the country's largest cities were located in the north. If you look at a list with the 25 largest U.S. cities in 1860, there are only three southern cities on that list New Orleans at number six, and then you have to go all the way down to number 22 to get to Charleston, South Carolina, and at number 25 was Richmond, Virginia. So in the middle of the 19th century, Northern society was much more urbanized than the South. And yet, while five and a half million Northerners were city dwellers, that still left some sixteen and a half million that lived in towns, villages, or on farms. And we should probably take a moment here to define our terms. When we talk about the North, we're talking about the 23 states and seven territories that stayed loyal to the Union during the Civil War. Which includes the four slaveholding border states that did not secede Delaware, Kentucky, Maryland, and Missouri. So the North really encompassed a huge geographical area from New England through the Midwest and then all the way out to California and down into the Southwest with the New Mexico Territory. All told, the North covered around three million square miles, while the South covered about 750,000 square miles. 
And in speaking of the South, we're talking about the 11 states that seceded from the Union and then as a political unit formed the Confederate States of America. The total population of the South in 1860 was 9.1 million people, but it's very, very important to keep in mind that that figure included 3.5 million slaves, so over one-third of the South's total population was enslaved. If we ask you to guess which southern state had the largest slave population, you might think it was one of the deep South states, but Virginia actually had more slaves than any other southern state. And then in two states, South Carolina and Mississippi, the slave population outnumbered the white population. On the eve of the Civil War, the southern United States stood as the largest modern slave society in the world. And really, by 1860, the South was only competing with Cuba and Brazil for that dubious honor, as by that time, Cuba and Brazil were the only other places in the world, besides the American South, that also still practiced African slavery. The South slaves were immensely valuable. Slaves were by far the most valuable commodities one could own in the southern states. On the eve of the Civil War, the South's slaves were worth around $3 billion. That's billion with a B, a sum that exceeded the value of all the farmland in all the states of the South. Slavery was not only profitable, it was productive. The labor of the South's enslaved population accounted for more than half of all the South's tobacco harvest, all of its sugar, rice, and hemp, and 90% of its cotton. And by 1860, cotton was America's single most valuable commodity. Cotton accounted for half the value of all the United States exports, as the South was producing two-thirds of all the commercially grown cotton in the world. King Cotton made some in the South fabulously wealthy. Although the South had just one-third of the U.S.'s white population, the region contained two-thirds of the men worth $100,000 or more. As Bruce Levine explains in his book, The Fall of the House of Dixie, quote, The typical master owned between four and six slaves. That much human property made him or her many times as prosperous as the average southern farmer, but considerably less wealthy than those masters who owned at least 20 slaves, for whom the Federal Census Bureau reserved the title planter. Only one out of eight southern masters belonged to this group, some 46,000 in total, but as a group they controlled more than half of all the South slaves and an even larger share of its total agricultural wealth. Some planters were far richer than others. The true planter aristocracy embraced 10,000 families that owned 50 or more slaves apiece. These were the people who, as the former North Carolina slave William Yancey later recalled, gave shape to the government and tone to society. They had the right of way in business and in politics. End quote. Overall, though, just one out of every four white families in the South in 1860 owned slaves. So as Alan Gelso points out in his book, Fateful Lightning, quote, Beyond the actual slaveholders themselves, there existed a large population of non-slaveholding whites, and without their cooperation, slavery could never have survived. Apart from a tiny population of urban professionals, the non-slaveholding white population of the South was the very model of the yeoman farmer that the Jeffersonians had assumed to be the salt of the earth in the early years of the Republic. 
At the same time, they had been shunted into the least desirable lands by the greater purchasing power of cotton, and there they clung to the old model of self-sufficient corn and livestock ag- agriculture, end quote. Gelzo goes on to point out that while these non-slaveholding whites may have had every reason to resent the economic success and political dominance of the great planters, but in reality, the yeoman farmers and wealthy planters were united by their fear of the monstrous specter of abolition and racial equality. You see, in the social system of the South, which was built upon the foundation of African slavery, all white Southerners could feel they were members of a ruling class. In explaining this white racial solidarity, Alabama lawyer Hillary Abner Herbert said, quote, The privilege of belonging to the superior race and of being free was a bond that tied all Southern whites together. End quote. As we've pointed out before in the podcast, the South used racism to justify the practice of slavery. But it's important to remember that many white Northerners, while they may have opposed slavery as an institution, they were hardly less prejudiced than Southerners. Sadly, throughout most of the North, free blacks had to deal with the ongoing reality of segregation, discrimination, and open racism. It's hard to believe, but in 1860, Indiana, Illinois, and Iowa barred blacks from entering the state. Massachusetts was the only northern state that allowed blacks to serve on a jury. And many, but not all, public schools were segregated especially the ones in cities and larger towns, those of New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Southern Ohio. In those places, segregated schools for blacks were distinctly second-rate and poorly maintained. While many white Americans on both sides of the Mason-Dixon line may have been linked by their racist attitudes, nevertheless, the yawning divide separating freedom from slavery gave emphasis to the differences between North and South rather than similarities. So we'll spend the rest of this episode looking at some more of those differences. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've already talked about the sizable disparity in population between the two sections of the country and that southern cities were small by comparison with their northern counterparts. 
Another significant contrast can be found between the economies of the North and South. If considered apart from the North, the South in 1860 had the world's fourth most prosperous economy. As we've already mentioned, most of that economic power was derived from cotton, or king cotton as the South liked to think of it. The 1850s were boom years for cotton. During that decade, the price of cotton jumped more than 50%. Sugar and tobacco prices and production similarly increased. The demand for these staples caused planters to put every available acre into these crops. But to a large extent, this meant the southern economy was a one-trick pony. With the concentration on growing cash crops like cotton, sugar, and tobacco, output of southern food crops actually declined in the 1850s. And though an agricultural society, the antebellum south was heading toward the status of being a food deficit region. Although the South had more agricultural acreage, the North's farm production was more diversified and yielded far more food crops, such as corn, rye, wheat, and barley. And while the South was content to rely on slave labor to work their fields, in the North, farmers used technological advances such as mechanical reapers, mowers, rakes, and separators to increase agricultural production. As a result of this technological advantage, although the number of men in the North engaged in farming decreased during the course of the war, farm production actually increased. In fact, the North's farms proved able to not only feed the population, but also to provide surplus for trade overseas. And whereas the main capital investment in the antebellum South was in slave labor, the North's economy was more robust as wealth was not only poured into agricultural diversification and modernization, but also into industry, mining, manufacturing, and railroad expansion. Technology harnessed to both agriculture and industry, plus a huge influx of immigrants to serve as a ready labor force, created a dynamic economy in the North. Industrially, the South lagged far behind the North. In 1860, about 140,000 factories were located in the North, which employed nearly a million and a half workers who produced almost $2 billion worth of goods. The South, by contrast, had only 20,000 factories employing 100,000 workers. And although the South had actually been an early pioneer in railroad construction in the 1830s, by 1860, the North had a decided advantage in this critical area. At the outbreak of the war, 70% of the country's railroad mileage, 22,000 miles versus 9,000 miles, was located in the north, as well as about 95% of rolling stock and railway equipment. And during the war, the layout of the South's railroads also put it at a strategic disadvantage. You see, southern rail lines had been built mostly with a view toward moving cotton from the interior to the coastlines. So the best southern railroads ran north-south toward the Gulf Coast. Southern rail lines running east-west often had to rely on rickety, inadequate connector lines, which hindered lateral, strategic movements during the war. And logistically, the South's rail lines would also prove incapable of carrying food and supplies to the Confederate armies. Especially during the latter stages of the war, Confederate soldiers in the field were often literally starving while food lay rotting in southern warehouses. The North, on the other hand, had excellent interlocking east-west rail networks, 
which would greatly facilitate strategic movement during the war, and also allowed a considerable portion of the Midwest's agricultural bounty to be transported to the eastern seaboard for consumption and for export. Financially, the North controlled more than 80% of the total U.S. bank deposits, about $189 million, and about 60% of the total gold reserves, around $56 million worth. This wealth was a significant factor in the North's ability to successfully finance the war effort. And while the South wasn't poor, most of its capital was invested in slaves. So at the outbreak of the war, the Confederacy controlled just under 20% of the total U.S. bank deposits, about $47 million, and around 40% of the total gold reserves, about $37 million worth. A short-sighted policy early in the war of withholding cotton from European markets in a clumsy attempt to pressure Britain and France to support the Confederacy ended up backfiring and deprived the South of much-needed revenue. As it was, the Confederacy was never able to successfully finance the war effort, and during the war years, the South's economy was crippled by runaway inflation. So the contrast between North and South could be clearly seen in some significant economic differences. And then there was also religious dimension to the divide between the two sections. As we've mentioned before on the podcast, in the years leading up to the Civil War, slavery led to a schism in the major American religious denominations. The two largest churches, the Baptist and Methodist, split into northern and southern branches, and the Presbyterian Church divided into two schools of sharply differing theological and social beliefs. Sadly, Southern churches zealously proclaimed a biblical justification for slavery, and so ministers in their pulpits provided some of the loudest voices declaring slavery to be a positive good of the antebellum Southern culture. Another major difference between the North and South before the war could be seen in the area of education. Now, Teaching children wasn't a prestigious occupation in the mid-19th century, and so many teachers in this era weren't especially well qualified. Nevertheless, public primary education was fairly widespread in the northern states, especially in towns and cities. And then many of the country's institutions of higher learning were located in the north. And as a result of all this, northerners enjoyed a relatively high level of education and literacy. In the south, public primary education was the exception rather than the norm in most areas of the region. And while some of the country's oldest colleges were in the South, notably in Virginia, still such institutions were much less widespread than in the North. Planters and other members of the upper levels of Southern society typically sent their children to private schools or hired tutors to teach them. As a result, levels of education and literacy were considerably lower throughout the South than in the North. This is especially true if the one-third of Southerners who were uneducated slaves is taken into account. While some slaves and free blacks in the South did manage to become literate or achieve some limited level of education, they were the exception to the rule, since Southern states had laws forbidding blacks to be taught how to read and write. Free blacks in the North did have the opportunity for schooling, often supported by black churches, black aid and self-help societies, and anti-slavery societies. In some areas, public education was available, but both public and private schools were usually or mostly segregated, 
and education beyond primary school was not readily available to most black students. But here I have to mention Oberlin College in Ohio, since it was a significant exception to 19th century educational norms, in that Oberlin was both co-ed and integrated. One of our loyal British listeners, John W., recently sent us a message via Facebook asking about the differences between the North and the South. He asked if there was a line at which the divide occurred, and if slavery was the determining factor in whether a state considered itself Northern or Southern, or if there were other factors involved. John said that as a Brit, he just didn't have a firm grasp on this concept of Northern and Southern, even though it was probably basic stuff for us as Americans. Tracy and I thought John's questions were great, especially since the whole concept of Northern and Southern really is probably one of those things that we Americans just take for granted. And so hopefully some of what we've already talked about in this episode helps explain the broad scope of the differences between the North and the South, and hopefully our discussion not just in this show, but also throughout the entirety of the podcast, shows that most of the differences between the two sections of the country can ultimately be traced back to the practice of slavery, and slavery's economic, social, and political consequences. So yes, John, it was mostly about slavery. But there was indeed also an actual line at which the North-South divide occurred. Traditionally, the boundary between North and South was seen as the Mason-Dixon line, which you guys may have heard us mention previously on the podcast at different times. In 1767, two Englishmen, Charles Mason and Jeremiah Dixon, completed a survey that marked what had been a disputed boundary between Pennsylvania and Maryland. And by the early 1800s, that boundary line, the Mason-Dixon line, had become more significant since most free states were entirely north of the line and most slave states were entirely to the south of it. And so before the Civil War, for Americans, the Mason-Dixon line defined the geographic and cultural boundary between north and south, between free and slave states. And then, even as America expanded westward with the movement of settlers, the dividing line between north and south also shifted westward. Out there, it was the Ohio River. And eventually, with pioneers pushing ever further west, with the Missouri Compromise, it was the venerable 3630 line. So, interestingly, in American history, there was always a line between north and south, whether it was the Mason-Dixon line, the Ohio River, or the 3630 line. And significantly, these lines were always recognized by Americans, not just as geographic boundaries, but as the divide between free states and slave states. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation for this episode is Life in Civil War America by Michael Varhola. Our original idea for this bonus episode was to show what life was like in 1860 America by looking at the things that made up the daily lives of Americans back then, really everyday things like clothing, food and diet, and even fun and games. But obviously the show morphed into something different than that. We kept the original introduction since we thought the whole the past is a foreign country stuff is pretty good. But from there, we took the show in a different direction than we'd originally planned, and we ended up highlighting some of the big, major differences between the North and South at the time the war broke out, 
differences that would, in ways large and small, play some part in defining the shape and course of the war itself. So, we hope you enjoyed the direction we eventually went with this bonus episode, but if you're interested in our original idea, uh, revolving around the daily lives of people back in those olden days, then you can check out Life in Civil War America by Michael Varhola. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations by going to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. Thanks for joining us for this special bonus episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us for our next regular episode, which will be about Jefferson Davis. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Hey everyone, welcome to this special bonus episode of our Civil War. <laughs> <laughs> what is that about? I don't know. <laughs>